All right, Zig at the top. Today on the show, we have Ramona Jan. Ramona is a woman of many talents. She's in the band The Comatines, which we covered in the last episode with Nick, but we'll also dive into a bit today. She is also an audio engineer who worked at Media Sound with a legendary artist, including Lou Reed, Frank Sinatra, The Talking Heads, The Ramones, and many more. But she also worked one-on-one with Brian Eno. And she has a pretty entertaining story about her and Brian's first meeting that she tells later in, a, in this conversation you're about to hear. Also is an accomplished songwriter, and she's been in a plethora of groups post-Comatines, uh, a few of which being Dizzy and the Romulars, Janturin, and Venus Flytrap. Ramona is also a writer. She wrote the first biography of John Bon Jovi. She is currently the Tuesday columnist for the award-winning Sullivan County Democrat with her column, Ramona's Ramblings. And the one thing that's pretty outstanding about Ramona's story is as an audio engineer, she got a lot of flack for being a woman and had to put up with a bunch of nonsense, right? But that never stopped her. And through this conversation, you start to pick up on her character and her tenacity like that. And it's it's super inspiring. Um, before we get to that conversation, we're going to listen to a Comatine's track. This is the song Elizabeth's Lover.
Elizabeth's Lover, Comatines, uh, Left for Dead Records is putting out a 12-inch featuring Elizabeth's Lover and Danger Zone, two previously unreleased tracks by the Comatines, um, so check that out. Before we get to the conversation, last thing, I promise, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool, inspiring guests like Ramona Jan and sharing their insights with you. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with Ramona Jan. Um, awesome. Well, to get into it, my first question, can you tell me about your neighbor from the Bohemian Bratton Hall? Uh, say that again? From Bohemian? <laughs> yeah, can you tell me about your neighbor from when you lived at Bohemian Bratton Hall? Oh, you call it the Bohemian Bratton Hall. Is that, okay, is that it? Is it wrong? <laughs> well, I don't, well, it's just the, oh, oh, the, um, oh, oh, okay. Well, it's the Bratton Hall Hotel. It still exists. It was a residential hotel. It's a very large building and a historic building in New York City. But at the time that I lived there... It was uh, really a flea bag, uh, drug-ridden, whoremongering uh, building because that the Upper West Side was considered the most dangerous part of New York City in the 70s, late 70s. And so uh, it was infested with um, mostly pros- uh, prostitutes and pimps. And it was a regular brothel, pretty much, especially on my floor. And what happened was there was an, um, a realtor named er- Ernest Chud. What a name, right? Right. He'll try to figure out how to pronounce it. And he basically was trying to uh, rent to artists. So there were all kinds of new people in the building, dancers, actors, musicians, uh, you know, mixed in to try, because he had a, a good idea, which was to convert the building by renting low low rents. I mean, my apartment, I think it was $125 a month for a, you know, a studio. Um, might have even been less than that. So it was just very, I remember looking at it, um, uh, looking at the, the the ads in the newspaper and finding that that was the least expensive place to go. I mean, even better than going to the bombed out Lower East Side. And um, so, but I, I read that your neighbor um, heard you rehearsing or something. Oh, okay. You want to know about that neighbor? Yeah, that's that. that <laughs> Everyone wants to particular. know about the pimps and prostitutes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's definitely interesting too. But okay, um, <laughs> you have to cut all that is... out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I had a baby grand piano in my studio apartment. You had to walk around it. <laughs> it took up the entire room. Yeah. I oh, only wow. owned that and had that because um, before I left for. Um, New York. I was 19. I moved alone, and and I was seeing. Uh, I had an eye doctor, you know, like everyone else in the world. And he died. And his wife knew I was a musician, so she said, "Do you want this piano?" So I did. I took it, and um, and then I played and wrote my music on that piano. And somebody, a neighbor of mine, she wasn't really a neighbor. She wasn't on my floor, but you could hear through, you know, just places. I don't know where, what, 
but she worked at Media Sound Recording Studio. And she wanted to become a, a, a recording engineer at a time when it was uh, discriminated against women or any, any minority people. And she, um, so she said she needed a musician to record, and I guess she didn't know anybody, so she asked me. And I, I went on day one. I just loved the place. And on day two... I marched myself up to the production office and asked for a job because <laughs> I needed I needed that was going to be my home, and that's it a, was. That's incredible. Did she like so that so you guys had like this kind of cool camaraderie getting through it? Yeah. Did she stick with it as well? No, 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 no. no. Okay. She did not. No. Oh, that's but the, what a cool like intro. You know what I mean? Like jumping into something like that. Like I yeah, imagine, the thing is. You know, the thing is, for females back then, or anyone becoming a recording engineer back then, then we learned from people who were in television. Uh, Fred Christie was one of them. We, we, we learned from these engineers who were really geeky before the word ever existed, you know, electrophiles who read books and looked at schematics and built things and soldered things. And none of that was foreign to me because my grandfather worked side by side with um, Henry Ford and also Thomas Edison. What? And he never treated, yes, oh yeah, my father, my grandfather was a tool and die maker. And he never treated the girls differently than the boys. So I grew up in a household, with him at least, where I wasn't, you know, shunned to do those things. Not that they interested me much, but um, I did learn how to, uh, you know, I did. I was familiar, I was not afraid to be around electronics of any sort, even wiring telephones and stuff like that. I remember I had to wire my telephone in New York City because I couldn't get the phone company to come, so I did it myself. <laughs> so, um, awesome. so when I, uh, so, but my main goal was to be there as a recording artist, uh, you know, to record my songs. Learning the the board and all that was very secondary for me. So on some level, I was less of a threat because many of the engineers picked up on the fact that my band was more important to me than the ever, you know, honing in on their trade. The other women were not musicians and were... Basically, you know, we would get bullied and harassed. And the other thing I had to my advantage is I grew up with three brothers, so I was quite used to that. And um, so personality had a lot to do with things, too, back then, because we were a new generation of engineers, and um, being an engineer was like being a rock star. You were cool, and you, you were, like, the center of attention, we were not geeky types. Bob Clearmountain was, was a little bit geeky, but we were all musicians, the ones who made it. I mean, I can name them. You know, Bob Clearmountain was a bass player. Harvey Goldberg was a guitar player. Godfrey Diamond was a drummer. Michael Barbiero, piano player and singer and a songwriter. So that was very different from the engineers we learned from, who were just strictly schooled and I don't know where they went to school or they figured it out themselves, but they were more like my grandfather. 
God, that's my grandfather didn't play an instrument. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, hung out with uh, some like bright minds. Jeez, like, but to, like, so that makes sense because it's kind of like a when you're an engineer or any sort, you're kind of like, uh, or a producer or any in that role. It seems like you're almost like kind of being like a psychiatrist in a way with the band to get them through the thing. If it's not like a super like, uh. I can play to the click, I can read the chart type of group, right? Yes, and, and, and we weren't very good psychologists, really, because back then there was that wasn't something that was as, as predominant as it yeah. is now. You know, people just didn't go to psychologists. We were just gangly nerve endings, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do, you know? Um, and... And the studio was very expensive, $250 an hour just for the time. That didn't include the musicians or, or, or uh, you know, uh, albums cost a quarter of a million dollars and upwards of that. So, um, so you know, uh, I don't know if they were very good psychologists. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about Ron Dante in particular. And he produced the Barry Manlow records, and he was the voice behind the Archies. He was a very talented... And before Ron, uh, before Barry got signed, they were very much business guys. And before Barry got signed, they did a lot of jingles together. They were already very wealthy. So this was just a natural next step for them, and I guess they decided between the two of them that Barry would be the one to be the performing artist and the name and the artist up front. Even though Ron Dante to this day tours with um, groups like the Turtles and, you know, he tours as the Archies still. Um, yeah, he does. He, what a phenomenal singer and uh, talent. But they decided Barry would be out front for whatever reason. Maybe he was cuter or something, taller. He was definitely taller. <laughs> <laughs> and he was already kind of on the circuit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So so was he a good psychologist to Barry? <laughs> I would say probably yes, because Barry had issues. Barry was gay, and he was couldn't be out front about that at that time. So that was a big issue. They even discussed, and I was witness to this, it happened during a session, that Barry might marry a, a what do you call them, a cabaret singer, named Helen Schneider, excellent singer. She could sing like Judy Collin, uh, Judy um, Judy Garland. I don't know if you know knew of Helen Schneider. And she was beautiful, and we, they they took her into the studio to produce an album. So probably there's something floating out there. And while she was doing her vocal part, they you know. You know, Ron uh, said, "What if we can get you to marry this gal?" You know, huh. this way there'd <laughs> yeah. be no questions. You know, so as a psychologist, I think he was very good with mm. Barry. So then there was other producers who um, I don't even really know what they did. They just they might they might have been arrangers. Okay, there were a lot of. Um, African-American um, producers back then because they were arrangers. They were actually schooled musicians like Van Morrison who did 
Van McCoy, I'm sorry, Van McCoy, who did the um, Hustle, okay? He was famous for the song The Hustle. He was a a phenomenal and brilliant arranger, and oftentimes record companies turned to arrangers to produce records. Now, again, they were kind of the geeky type because they know how to notate music and stuff like that. They're not really person people, you know? So, so there was all kinds of different things, and sometimes it was awkward in the studio with producers. Uh, I had my hands full with nasty facts. Um, I produced that the single "Drive My Car." That's a great a tune. Yeah, I know it's unbelievable, and I really had my hands full. That was nothing but psychotherapy. Yeah, <laughs> those kids were wild. They were spoiled rich kids, they were drinkers, except for the lead singer. <clears throat> I didn't know much about her, but um, <clears throat> I, I, she was the oldest. She was 17. Uh, the rest were 14 and 15. And they were just out of hand. Just out of hand. Uh, and, and I looked at it as a babysitting job. And I at first volunteered to do it, but in the middle of the session, I turned to one of their parents and I said, you're going to have to pay me for this or I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) said, how much? And he took out his checkbook and I said, 400 bucks. (laughs) And he wrote me out a check for 400 bucks. I don't know why I came up with that figure, but that's what I was paid to produce. Well, that's a a couple months rent. That's pretty good. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) I was doing good. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, they're well, out of figure. But it's that's that's super interesting because like it's a very like unique experience like recording and I imagine like then too when there's a lot more on stake with money and like working with all the types of talent you worked with and like so were bands like Nasty Facts and like maybe like kind of bands that you were circling the scene with like not like the bands everyone wanted to work with. Does that make like we're because they weren't like uh, I guess producers. nobody wanted to work with the Talking Heads or Ramones. Let's just go right there. Yeah, yeah. So anything under that, you know, there were underlings. I mean, not even yeah, nobody's no. But yeah, I I worked with the Talking Heads, Ramones, and Brian Eno because nobody at Media Sound wanted to work with them. Now, of course, they regret, especially not being able to work with Eno. Um, so yeah, you know, they were considered non-musicians and. There was an attitude of you had to be able to read charts and be a real musician. And uh, a real musician meaning you read music, you studied music, you had lessons. But I was in a I was in coma teams, and I didn't have really lessons to speak of, or um, uh, you know, I mean, I was winging it like they were. So. Uh, I was fine to be on those sessions for many reasons. First of all, to work with Ed Stasium, who I never had an issue with as far as sexual harassment or bullying, which was very predominant among all the uh, pretty much all the other people I worked with. Um, so, in one way or another, I'm not I'm not saying like Ron Dante and, and you know, but their musicians on the gig might have harassed me. Um, so uh, I was, it was a safe place for me to be with Brian Eno and Ed Stasium. I lived for, I lived for it. Was it that's 
it's interesting that that kind of like a was kind of like a if you can read if you if the, this kind of illusion that you're going to get through your tunes maybe quicker and easier and that the session will run smoother is that kind of why why like bands no. like the Ramones and yeah okay well when you're paying when a record company is paying two hundred fifty thousand dollars to make a record <laughs> yeah. They don't want any downtime. You won't be practicing or doing your part over again. Yeah. Oftentimes, records were very, like, I'll just take you through it. Um, Barry Manlow, who was number one on the charts at the time. There was somebody that arranged the music and conducted the musicians, and they played it note for note. And the singers that came in, the background singers, uh, they were called Lady Flash. They all read music, so they weren't making up parts like we do now. You're a musician, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, no, they read the charts accurately, or they didn't get the job. And so it was very tight. The, everything was tight. The only thing you were dealing with was takes that might be oh, a little too slow, a little too fast, like Clive Davis would come in and he'd say, uh, one, I remember one song in particular, I don't remember what the song was, but with Barry Manlow, he had us bring all the musicians back in, do the whole setup again, because he wanted the end of the song to go up a half a step, or a whole step. And um, so that was that. So you got, and they chose their engineers, and the engineers chose, or the production office chose the assistant engineers. To, you know, to pair certain people uh, with up. Um, and so, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but so when the heads and those guys came up in, they came in in weekend, what I call weekend deals or midnight deals, where they got the studio real cheap and they had to cut all their basic tracks in two days. That's not how the hit records were made back then. So this was Sire Records, you know, bringing in their newly signed people and getting a deal because media was willing to give those deals. They were smart. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. And to be in your seat in both those type of sessions to kind of witness, like, the this tight machine, like, kind of taking notes and exit out a hit and like see a group kind of like working through like it, it there had to be a really interesting perspective to have for when you brought the comatines in well when i went in with the comatines as an artist um yeah my struggle was always well i'm definitely not a session musician and that's what i thought i should be and I just couldn't come to terms with that. I uh, I didn't relate to the guitar like a player would, um, like Elliot Randall, for example, um, who played the solo on Reeling in the Years. <laughs> he played many, very few. He was the wrecking crew guitar player. So anyway, um, I felt less than them. And I didn't realize, because there were no real words for it, we were reinventing music. We were allowing everybody to play music because we weren't seasoned musicians. We were one-note musicians, comatines. 
and uh, we were just, I, I used a guitar like Ardo Lindsay did. I just made sound effects with it, basically. And um, sometimes it was very jangly, sometimes it was very buzzy sounding. But uh, my go end goal was the song. So I didn't realize then that what I really was was a songwriter. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I'm very happy to just be the songwriter and have somebody else perform the song. I don't want to go out at night anymore. <laughs> but it, there's something like, I don't know, there's something to that process of writing it and then having someone else step in and do it. Like, especially with like a, I don't know, if you have a banjo track and you're not a banjo player and now you got this really great sounding banjo take on whatever, you know what I mean? Like to see that like kind of part come to life out of your mind, maybe even more like in tune or, or a finer uh, image, a fi clearer image than you would have been able to do. There's definitely like a magic with that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I mean, I did, I was kind of spoiled at Media Sound because first of all, I got to see how the greatest records were made. It's a formulaic. And uh, I got to work with the wrecking crew of New York City which was, you know, they, they nabbed things in one or two takes. It wasn't, uh, you know, lots of hours spent. You couldn't get. And I worked with, and I was trained with the greatest engineers, you know. One of my jokes is like, everyone just puts compression and reverb on things, and they think that's the way to do it, and it's not. It was all about miking technique. So um, when I left Media Sound, and then I worked at Power Station for a while, but when I left being an audio engineer, I'd become, I would be, and just being an artist, I'd have to go in under other people and work with other musicians who weren't that. I would become very frustrated about, like, you don't have this yet? You didn't get this down yet? <laughs> and as, and as uh, rudimentary as I was, I got my stuff down in a take or two because that's what was supposed to happen, you know? I was, the, I was a young person, so, you know, I really practiced my part, simple as it was. Yeah. I came in red. But I got to imagine that, like, it's a simple lesson, but that's, like, probably one of the biggest differences in how your parts went compared to the whomever else you were working with or other bands like that, like, having that bit ready and that bit tuned. Well, Nick in the Comatines was um, a trained classical musician, and he went to music school and everything. And um, I didn't actually know that until recently. But I picked up on him. He was very quick and um, and could play several instruments and sang pitch perfect and with all the nuances of a, of a great singer. So um, I was really happy to have him in the band. Um, you know, so it made me work up a level and improved me but I was not real interested in learning much more about the guitar you know I was just I had enough chords to write songs I was interested I had something to say that's what punk music was all about it wasn't about being a good musician it's like folk music and that I became a folk musician afterwards years after decades after I even won folk awards uh, and um, so, you know, it's very related cousins, you know, punk and folk 
You don't have to be that good of a player, but you better have something to say, and you better say it well. I think that's I, well well said, and it's it's a really interest, interesting kind of comparison. Then you get like genres like folk punk, <laughs> like like uh-huh. wow, this makes sense. <laughs> like it's probably what I, I actually do because when I we performed at NERFA, which is the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, we were semifinalists in that. When we performed there, we did a song called Die Like a Dog. I I mean, I don't think they expected that. (laughs) It was definitely folk punk. That is like one of the punkest titles. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what could, like, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. (laughs) We've got that on our YouTube channel, by the way, if you ever want to look it up. Because the band was my husband and myself and our names together, our last names together, Jan Turan. J-A-N-T-U-R-A-N, and you have to say band after it on YouTube to find us. Otherwise, you'll go to a country called Janturan, which we had no idea existed. But they had all the YouTube stuff and all the <laughs> website, you know. Beat it Can't to it. Be- I know, I know. <laughs> Unbelievable. We put your two, two, put your two made-up last names together, because both of our names are made up. Yeah. And then you come up with a country. It's crazy. In Indonesia. It's, it's kind of crazy how, like, uh, circular or how some ideas are. You think no one would ever put that together. And, well, I'm wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Especially, like, something as specific as that. Yeah, you can imagine at 2 in the morning when we're like, okay, that's our band name. Now let's get the YouTube channel. And we're like, what? Gosh. And they have six views. And, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sing music. Great. <laughs> you gotta do a gig with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Andre thought we should go over to Indonesia and and, and gig there. He said oh, they would not appreciate our music. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when, so were the Comatines? Were you doing? Were they together while you were working at this recording uh, engineer job and like learning the ropes of that? Were you also like, were the, was the band existent before? Or were you just interested in recording your own music? I I began. Okay, well, I started working there in 75, 1975. In 77, Nick got a job as a receptionist there. We had never met up until that point. And I had all these songs, and I was, you know, just percolating with lists of songs I was writing, with not really knowing how to approach getting them recorded because I knew I needed really good musicians and I don't even think I considered the guys, the wrecking crew too good. I didn't want them. Um, so I don't know. I met Nick and, and we talked and I found out he had been in a couple of bands and played CBGBs even and all that. And I was like, okay, let's uh, do the music. And, and we did. That's when the band started. We had our first gig in 78. Before, like solo, never. I mean, oh, okay. never. I had never played live or done yeah? anything like that. No, I mean I played at my brother's wedding and it was awful. Oh no, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. I, you know, because in my imagination I could do it all, great. But when I actually got up, I couldn't. I couldn't. I mean, uh, but I did. I mean, I. I mean, if you want to count in the church, they had a folk group. I don't even recall. I know that I played the guitar in that. 
and I played the organ a little bit, and I sang my songs that I was writing. And, of course, they all had to be church songs with Jesus and Mary in them. <laughs> but I wrote those songs, and everybody was happy, and that was a go-ahead, you know, in yeah. my family. That was like, okay, you're going to be ready for Sunday, right? Yes. And I have my song. My new song is called And She Looked Down. It's about Mother Mary looking down on us and and watching over us. Oh, good. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I was very much, um, yeah. <laughs> but in a way, you know, here's a format that's going to work. The audience will like it. I'm learning how this process works. <laughs> like, you have an audience and a big one. <laughs> and you're there with a microphone and a guitar. Yeah. And I invited all my friends who played the guitar and anyone who could sing. So, you know, it was, a, it was quite a big group at times. And um, so uh, I did, that was my only, that was it. <laughs> but still, that's like the origins of songwriting for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. that's incredible. Like, yeah. and it that... didn't hone any skills, though I have to say, <laughs> except that uh, as far as playing or singing, all it did was make me write more songs, which was where I was headed anyway. I didn't know I was really a songwriter because I had such so many things to say and hidden. I mean, I should look that song up and. Um, you know, did you, were you did you grow up in a religion? Um, kind of, but not not like really okay. practiced. Well, here's a, here's a song that we used to sing in church that I think would make a great heavy metal song. Right? Yeah, yes, it's called "Sons of God." <laughs> yeah, goes, sons of God, hear His holy word. Gather round the table of the Lord. Eat his body, drink his blood, and you'll sing a song of love. Can you imagine? Yeah, that would be super sick, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we sang that every Sunday. Uh, That is metal shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. But, but, you know, like, because I... For me, I guess my songwriting journey happened later, like in in high school, and in and has been kind of loose and like tr- really trying to grasp different things. And like, did you like so after you're spending time and you're watching all these artists record, and did the that formula become clear to you? Did that become like a at least a oh I see in how how they're putting their songs together for these hits? Maybe I'll take this and try to work my own thing. Like, well, here's what happened. First of all, I was writing songs way before I worked right. at the recording studio. I, I, yeah. I wrote poetry from the time I was three, and my mother would jot it down in a book, you know? And um, and then I wrote little short stories, and, you know, I was just inclined to writing. But I was very influenced by the 60s, like Stevie Wonder, Carole King, well, she's early 70s, and... Um, when I was like 11, 12 years old. Uh, but the turning point for me was one day uh, I, wrote, I wrote a song called Shine On, and Clear Mountain always really appreciated my songwriting. And he, he liked the song, but he took the quarter-inch tape, and he goes, I, got, I just got to work with the song, and he edited it. I couldn't believe what he did. And he put, put the chorus up closer in other words, I was verse, 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 chorus, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
but he tightened it up. And and it was, to me, it was like, first of all, it was like, what are you doing to my song? But then it was, wow. I, he, he, in one, and he did it real fast. He edited it, because that's what we did. We edited things all the time. And um, it was beautiful, the, what he did. And I learned from that. I learned to tighten my song up. And like so, in that's that's just kind of is that getting to the chorus quicker? Is that cutting yes. like lyrics and stuff that are rambling? Is kind of like getting a, to the chorus quicker and cutting out a section maybe that wasn't needed, like a pre-chorus that maybe wasn't needed or something. And and I learned that that what what was the best thing about that was that um, I learned that I could just let go of things. And then the person who really honed that in would have been Eno. But I, I want to, before we talk about Eno, I want to talk about Doc Pomus. Pomus. I think Thomas. that's his. I think that's his name. Pomus with a P. Oh, Pomus. Pomus. Okay. Yes. He wrote Heartbreak Hotel. Mm. He wrote many, many big hits of that era. Um, he came to CBGB's once and saw one of my bands might have been comatines, I don't remember. When I came off stage, he was holding songwriting workshops, and he's considered one of the most, you know, renowned songwriters of our, our lifetime. But I didn't recognize him. I didn't know who he was. And he grabbed my hand, and he said, do you write the songs? And I said, yes. And he said, um, I, I, I want to give you a tip if you don't mind. And I said, oh, I don't mind. Well, I wanted to get, he was in a wheelchair and he was a bearded guy in CBG. But I was like, yes, hurry up with the tip. <laughs> and he's like, um, I want you to know that each song that you write, as great as it is, is never your greatest song. You will always have another one. And I have held on to that tip for the, my whole life. And at the time that that happened, Six Degrees of Separation, I had just worked on a Coney Island Baby with Lou Reed, and Lou Reed was one of the people who was in his classes. Yeah. So I think he would have, had I not sort of been creeped out by him, I think he was going to invite me to the classes. But I kind of pulled away and, and walked away, because I was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was really cool and I wanted to just look hot you know and I wasn't looking hot with some guy in a wheelchair and a beard an old guy you know what I mean whoever yeah. you are yeah uh, wasn't looking hot sorry I just got off stage and I need to be like you know told I'm the best thing in the world <laughs> which by the way didn't happen either afterwards but, but wow. oh my god but still, to drop one one nugget of advice, that's an oh, that's, that's a big wild. nugget, yeah. Um, so working with Lou, uh, at least on that record to the six degrees of separation here, did any like kind of talk of that happen, or did you ever hear him talking about and put that yeah, together? No, he didn't all talk. Post? He okay, didn't talk okay. in that session. He just doodled. Yeah. Okay. Now the other thing I want to say that I became very good just, and this just came naturally by listening and by osmosis. I didn't even intend it. But I'm very good at vocal arrangements and background vocals. If you go to, once again, Jan Turan Band mm-hmm. on YouTube, you'll see um, a cam jam that my husband and I did with Brian May from Queen. 
Wow, that's sick. Yeah, and he, 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 we did a song with him, one of his favorite songs that he kind of grew up with. And we did all the background vocals, which I arranged all of them. And, and I kind of pride myself on that because that's also something I learned at Media Sound from all the vocal arrangers and what they actually did. And I found that part because I leaned toward vocals and words. I'm not so clued into what the bass is doing or what the drums are doing. I know when it's wrong, but I don't know how to correct that stuff. But vocals, I am very, very keyed in on. So I arranged a lot of the vocals and all of the Jantaran stuff, and particularly on that Brian May jam. Do, um, as far as like vocal arranging goes, um, now are you looking at like, what's, what's I guess, What's kind of like common practice? Do you see is it three part harmonies, four part harmonies, and are you moving like in close intervals or far? Because I, I I tend to hear a lot of close intervals, but I'd imagine you would have more insight on on that. Well, I pers I per that's all a matter of taste, and I personally yeah. like close intervals. Okay. But I'm talking more about counter melodies, oh, uh, okay. Okay, okay. stuff that goes in between, yeah, shadowing and foreshadowing, and you know, echoing, and you know like they would do in Motown. Okay. So so that Motown like uh, vocal like experience just growing up and hearing that in did is that kind of, like working in all these environments that was kind of what was replicated a lot? Well, I listened to a lot of Motown growing up. Okay. Um and uh loved all the Motown groups. And then, here's the irony of that, who was recording them? Tony Bon Jovi, who was the senior engineer at Media Sound, and I would later in life meet and work under. Almost thinks, almost makes you think there's a destiny there. And, and Tony was always, what was good about Tony was he was always opening to listening to a new artist, no matter where you came from, how you approached. He was always looking for talent of any kind. So if you said, and I did, oh, Tony, you know, I write songs. <laughs> I'm laughing because I listened today to this song that I had written, uh, having no real influences, musical influences that I could bring in, you know. That's what real musicians do. They can mimic uh, their musical influences. I, I couldn't do that. So I just banged out this song called Separate that I wrote on when I was 15. I banged it out on the piano, a, an instrument I didn't really play. Um, and I sang it for him. And I have to say, it was it's punk meets jazz. It's one of the oddest songs you'd ever hear. It has no, absolutely no frame of rest, reference. <laughs> and looking back, I think to myself, he was very nice to just say, that's great, and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of that, what, what the hell? That's yeah. Thanks, you know? And um, so anyway, that was... And Tony, by the way, recorded the first Talking Heads record and the first Ramones record, and I worked on those things with him. Maybe he asked for me because he thought I would fit in with that group, and he was right. <laughs> Was it I, one? I think 
I hear a lot of stories of people being really mean in that type of situation. So I think that's like that's really cool of Tony to not be like, what you know what I mean like. To, to yeah, well, behind my back, he could have been backstabbing, but sure, certainly not but... in front of my face. It was it was encouraging, but I knew that I wasn't the chosen one because I know what it was like when Tony did get excited about yeah, an art. Yeah. Um, but you know, so to not be—I I don't know—I think I—that's—that's. That, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. That's great. <laughs> I don't know, because I. Um, cause I, I yeah. Working with kids and, and hearing a lot of people's first yeah. interaction with people taking lessons and how horrible that goes and how that can really like de- uh, completely stop someone's interest in it. You know what I mean? Like it's such a bummer. Um, well, but, what I was looking for was a record deal. Yeah. You know, with Tony listening to you, you could get an, you could get an instant record deal. I think what he was hoping for, I'd be a phenomenal singer. He could put me on some dates or, you know, I'd play the piano or something phenomenal, but nothing phenomenal. Because I was not in that ilk. I was not a session musician type. I was a total raw punk artist. And that was something that I was just born that, like everyone else who went into that scene. We were born that way because we didn't want, we, we were breaking away from the 50s and 60s upbringing and suburbia. <laughs> so I can, that's all I can say. Um, you know, and that was more about that. That's why it's more like of a folk movement. But that, I think that's what harkens those two together to kind of go back. Yeah, um, yeah. One thing I wanted to, to put uh, unpinned... I guess we were doing what what folk couldn't complete. Right. We took up the the, the uh, torch. Or, but go or, ahead. Uh, or maybe just folk with like with more kind of opportunity sonic opportunity. We needed to really shout it out. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't matter. You didn't have to even have an instrument around you. You just had to get up there and get attention. Dress provocatively. Do crazy things. Uh, punch people in the audience. We <laughs> had to get. <laughs> Get it. The 70s made the 60s look like the 50s. <laughs> um, the one thing I wanted to unpin was you're uh, talking about letting go. And as someone who writes something, writes a lot, like in, in, in trying to get like a hold of this whole writing thing, and I, I write a lot and like just kind of it stays there and just keep keep doing something until something sticks. But like the process of letting ideas go. I wanted to, I feel you were going to go down a lane with that. Yeah, I think I learned that most from Eno because he did something called subtractive recording, which I really loved, and which is just he erased things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, Check. He never added. He just subtracted, and I really liked that. And he was just willing to scrap everything, and no matter who it was, you too. We didn't like it. Let's erase all this stuff. I mean, there are people who rescued it, but he was just ready to just let it go and just start all over again. And um, I, w- I was eventually hooked up with Chapel Music, and they thought I was a very good melody writer. That's the irony of all things, right? And they hooked me up with professional lyricists, and I had never worked with professional lyricists. And boy, did I see flash and burn, you know, you just, oh, you have two words that are good, that's it. Everything else got to go, including the title. 
when we start here. And it was a rugged road, and I cried during it, and I, and I, I was out to dinner once with Bob Clearmountain, and, and I couldn't concentrate because I was working with a lyricist who was changing the lyrics to a song that meant a lot to me because I wrote from my heart. But I wrote, and this is typical of, of people who don't really write good lyrics, I wrote, wrote coded lyrics, which means that when it, you heard them, they weren't, you didn't, they were open to too much interpretation. And this happens a lot in rock, and it's okay, that's fine. But I was going, I wanted to write standards, you know. I wanted to write song like Desperado is a fantastic lyric. You can follow it, you know what's going on, it's a guy talking to another guy. Everything is clear. Nothing is coded in that song. That would be a good song to look at. So I wanted to reach those levels. And um, so I went downstairs to the payphone booth, because that was what there were that day. I said, Bob, I have to go downstairs and talk to this woman because she's destroying my song. And I called her up and I said, you cannot do this and you will not do this. And I cried and I came back upstairs. And then something in the next few days there was a realization and I was able to step back and look at what she was contributing and I was seeing what she was doing she was just making it more clear what I was trying to say uh, okay so like and here's what I learned from her yeah because I was the singer of the song she said you always have to watch out for singers never show them an incomplete an incomplete song because they love the way words feel in their mouth and they will get used to it and that's the same for you and then they will not change it for a better word and boy did that come true because I worked with many great singers singing my songs Lisa Lowell, Susie Tyrell they play in the E Street Band my husband uh and I could never show them a song unless it was done. I have a song on Denise Donatelli, one of Denise Donatelli. She's a jazz artist, so you wouldn't know who she is. Uh, she won a Grammy, even though. <laughs> I have a song on one of her records. Same thing. We did not hand that lyric in until it was done, and there would be no changes. Um, yeah, because... That's okay. I spend a lot of time on a lyric. I spend between 20 to 40 hours just on the lyric, and the lyric has to look good on paper, and it has to have certain consistencies, such as if you're speaking slang, then you don't put a word like tundra in the song. And you know what I'm saying? So you need to keep the vernacular the same uh, throughout, you have to decide about your vernacular. Is it sophisticated? Is it going to be... Sl I tend to be slangish in my songs. Um, and, uh, and then, and then uh, has to paint pictures. You want to, with every word and every note, is an opportunity to lead your listener into an imagination that you want to control. It's like the metaverse. 
So I want, like, uh, okay, so I have a song called The Alluring Laura Darling. And it starts, in a place by the river, a murder of crows takes the sky. You can picture that, right? Right. So what do you picture? You look at, you're by a riverbed, and you look up, and you see, so you can, you can see every, I'm picking up what you, a bunch of crows. Yes. Takes the sky, right? Yep. So you see what I wrote. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. Um. Let's see if I can remember the <laughs> There's a sense of unease in the wind in the trees as seasons roll on by. So that's the next, uh, you know, and I, you know, there's a in the wind of the trees, yeah, in the wind in the trees. I, I mean, I have to look to see as seasons roll on by. And in the Western Hotel, so now we get to the hotel that's on the river. Uh, and in the way where, where some men come and go. Notice that I picked the word some men. Okay? Because what does that imply? You can answer that question. So in the Western Hotel, where some men come and go, the alluring Laura Darling, my friend, puts on the finest show. Oh, okay. So why is it why is it some men? Well, not a, okay. So now it's it's a, a targeted audience <laughs> going. Well, it's this. a certain kind of yeah, a man, right? It's a certain kind of a man, probably, but it could be anyone in any anything. But it's definitely a certain kind looking for a certain thing, right? It's I didn't say young men come right. and go because I didn't want to be so specific. But, I didn't say. Uh, all men, because all men don't. That would be a lie. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful not to lie. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful not to be too specific. And, uh, you know, so that th- there can be a little bit of interpretation, but not too broad. That's, I think that's beautifully put. That's yeah, well, you know, now that I'm older and I've written many songs, and I think some good ones, um, and I've and I've learned the craft of lyric writing, and I must say that uh, these le- professional lyricists, Margie Foreman was one of them, and Susan Tabachman another, they tortured me, but. I came out with learning the tools. They may not have been good teachers of it, but I learned the tools to the point where I don't need to collaborate anymore. That is always just a choice. And still to this day, um, Susan DeBachman will call me and say, look, can you look at this lyric? And we do this for each other um, and tell me, you know, where, you know what, what you see in it, you know. So I'm the more slang writer. She's the more sophisticated writer. We make a good team together. We've worked for um, a couple of... We've we've written lyrics professionally for a couple of jazz artists. And, um, you know, that, that, that just honed me in. That was it. She also was very much into poetry. I hate poetry. But she opened it up to me to... Because poetry is just the opposite of lyric writing. Poetry is all about code and interpretation 
Lyric writing is, I always tell people, you know, I've taught lyric writing, and when they come, a lot of them are poets, and they just want to leave because I say what's going to happen here is you're going to be very specific. It's not going to be, um, you know, poetry tends to, I don't know how to explain it, but it doesn't, it's not, you're not, you're not leading, you're opening up. With poetry, you're opening up the imagination of the person. With lyric writing, you're 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 telling a story, and it's a specific. In my opinion, good lyric writing. Right. You know. Well, um, I was going to say I agree with that because then you're in the world of the character or the story or the whoever is being whatever point of view is being written. Right. You can buy into it. Right. So if I read if I read your lyrics on paper. They, they have to hold up on paper, mm. and that's what I do with people. Because my husband, he can sell any song with his voice. Mm. So can Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, sold a whole shitload of songs. <laughs> you know, when he as a, a solo artist, not mm-hmm. the Jackson Five. They had professional writers. Um, but Michael Jackson, Thriller, the lyrics, <laughs> terrible. Okay? Yeah. So what I wanted to achieve in my lifetime was that other really good singers would cover my song. And that did happen for me. I, you know, I'm on a Grammy Award winning album. Um, So I, that's what I wanted. And, and, And singers will cover your song. Sure, there will be sometimes a singer who will cover a song just because it had a certain crimson and clover about it mm-hmm. um you know mm-hmm. what i mean <laughs> uh so i um you know so that's what i so that's where i went in in with my thing i was like i i was a strong melody writer and i'm like now i got to get to be a better a better lyricist because mm-hmm. i want to see what happens did being a stronger melody writer at first kind of make lyric writing easier does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You don't yeah. care about the lyrics. You just throw <laughs> them in there. It's just like, get the song done. It's right, like, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's I like, guess just the sense, good of, enough. the sense of yeah. meter, like meter being able to kind of like visualize how it will fit musically. I, I got to imagine that kind of changes what words you can actually, I mean, like aside taking after it looks good on paper, there is there that second phase to make it work melodically. Well, uh, a lot of times people write the music and the lyrics at the same time, mm-hmm. so it's about working more on the lyrics after you've got that part done. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say that okay, let's say that you've written the melody and the lyrics, and you write what are called fake lyrics or just get them done lyrics. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you put them on paper. Now, this is where the craft comes in of lyric writing. The melody is done. You're not going to change the melody. So, uh, especially if you're the stronger, you're stronger in melody writing. You got your melody. You love it. So then you're going to look at the lyric on paper. And this is where you start to work with title placement, vowels, um, and, and it becomes like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And and taking out all the cliches because let's face it, when we do our first draft, there's lots of cliches in there. 
they got to all be out. You got to say the same thing over and over again. I love you. Let's dance in a different way. Hmm. And you know, so I mean, you could look. You can look on Jan Turan Band and 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 listen to some of those songs and see what I'm talking about. We have all these videos to songs that I wrote. Um. So I guess now putting out this uh, Comatines like. Uh, unreleased tunes looking way back at your early songwriting how do you reflect upon that well you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about you're going to see that I was a very strong melody writer but I didn't even know you had to change the words in each verse back then the first words just repeat Verse first, same as the first. (laughs) pretty much Uh, I think I changed it maybe slightly here and there I'm not sure I'd have to listen to it again, but when I listened to it, when I was listening at the test pressings, I was like, oh, I guess I didn't know that when you have a second verse, it should say something different and maybe build on the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the second verse is always tricky. Ah. (laughs) Yes, yes, the second verse. I I love to do the second verse because... It's the twist. It, it, you yeah. need to go somewhere with it. You need to bring the song up a step. And oftentimes when I teach people how to write lyrics, their second verse is really their first verse. Kill the first verse entirely, throw it out, you start with the second verse. Um, so, um, so basically on these songs, and there are other songs where I'm actually, you know, a jazz artist named Kazri Jackson just took my songs from the time I was 15 till the time I was 25 and interpreted them in in free jazz. Whoa. Okay? Cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So she did Danger Zone, for one. Yeah? And she did, oh, yeah. I can send you, if you give me Please. your email address, Definitely. I can send you, because it was a concert at the Tustin Theater, and... Um, you might get a kick out of it because I I realized that you know what some of the songs I was really good lyrically and didn't know mm. and you see the transition and she even talks about it she goes now this is the song that she wrote where she was really trying to go to the next step with lyrics you know mm. so she 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 narrates it and all that that's but cool me, yeah wow let me let me find it. Um. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I found that before before our initial chat here. That's so cool. Well, we could have another chat if I you mean, want. Yeah, um, <laughs> you might have to. Sometimes that happens. With well, thank you so much. I really appreciate okay. that. That means a lot. Like diving into your story, I'm like, oh, she's so cool. She's such a badass, and like <laughs> you're proving That's that funny. even more. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Dave. Awesome. Well, it's good to meet you and talk to you. Likewise. Great. Likewise. Well, right. I look forward to Great. chatting with you soon. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang. <laughs>